You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. We're in a series right now, as many of you know, on mysticism and how mysticism, I believe, is at the heart of Christianity and has a very long and storied history within the church. And for that reason, I want to introduce you this morning to someone uh, called Pseudo-Dionysius the Areopagite. Anybody ever hear of this guy before? Uh, he lived during the 5th and 6th century. This is probably why you haven't heard of him before. He's, he's a bit old. Um, and is known by some as the father of Christian mysticism. His name is weird, though, right? And a bit of a mouthful. Pseudo-Dionysius the Areopagite. Pseudo means, this is not really his name. This is what we call a pseudonym. Okay. We don't know what his real name was. But he got this pseudonym. He adopted this name, Dionysius the Areopagite, from the Book of Acts. And he got it from a story where this guy named Dionysius the Areopagite converted to Christianity after hearing the Apostle Paul debate with the philosophers of Athens at this formal debate forum there in Athens called the Areopagus. And as the story goes, Paul is in Athens and is speaking at this, debating at this forum called the Areopagus. Again, which is this formal meeting place where philosophers and theologians and thinkers would gather and debate and discuss important matters and theories of the day. It's here in a heated debate with some Greek philosophers that Paul amazingly says that he actually likes their pantheism, their idea that in God we live and move and have our being. That in other words, our beinghood is taking place within the beinghood of God. God is the cosmos, and therefore our being and God's being are really one being. Pretty mystical stuff, right? And Paul says he likes this idea and agrees with it, even though it's a Greek idea primarily, which is actually rooted in Plato's philosophy. Paul was in many ways a good Platonist. And he goes on to say that while he agrees with this mystical and Platonist idea, this pantheism, he says that God, however, cannot really be known. And so the various idols he sees around the city of Athens made out of stone and precious metal, these are not like the one true God, he says, which is not subject to our mental and material representations of him. God is not an idol. God is not an object, Paul is saying. God is wholly other than something beyond human comprehension. In fact, Paul says that the one true God is the unknown God. And he's getting that term, the unknown God, actually from an altar. He saw amongst all the other altars while he was in Athens, the Athenians uh, really wanted to cover their basis. And so they had an altar to every god they could possibly, and the Greek pantheon was huge, right? So they had an altar to every god that they knew of and even created an altar, an empty altar without an idol on it, 
was simply the inscription to the unknown God. They wanted to cover all their bases. They were deeply concerned about offending even a God they might not be aware of. And so Paul keys in on this altar to the unknown God and says, that's the God I'm talking about. And it's this God, this unknown God that created the heavens and the earth and the cosmos, you and me, this unknown God is by definition, he says, not subject to our mental or our material representations of him, her, them. You can't make an idol out of the unknown God, he's saying. And at the end of this debate, this man named Dionysius the Areopagite was really impressed. And so he converts to Christianity and becomes a student or a disciple of Paul's. And again, he was called Dionysius the Areopagite because he hung out <laughs> at the Areopagus, right? This formal meeting place where Paul was debating. And um, fast forward 400 years later, and this unknown Christian mystic adopts this guy's name as a pseudonym for himself, probably because he identified with him so much, or he identified with Paul's arguments at the Areopagus on that day. And so he uses this pseudonym, Dionysius the Areopagite, to write all this mystical literature that is focused on this idea of the unknown God. And Paul's argument that it's within this unknown God that we live and move and have our being. And from here, Pseudo-Dionysius comes up with a theory that the best way to speak of this God, this unknown God, is through negation. Through saying what God is not, instead of saying what God is. This was called apophatic theology. Apophatic means negative. The best way to understand it is by understanding its opposite, positive theology or cataphatic theology, which is the kind we're all familiar with. Positive theology is theology that makes specific truth claims about God, God's character, God's nature. For example, positive theology would say God is good, God is love, God is triune, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is a judge. Those are examples of positive theology or cataphatic theology. Apophatic theology or negative theology, on the other hand, says any claims we make about God, like the ones I just did, are by definition incomplete and therefore incorrect. Because God is completely beyond human comprehension. So therefore, it's better to say what God is not in order to get closer to what God is, all the while knowing that one could never actually arrive at understanding what God really is. For example, apophatic theology says, God is not triune, God is not Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, because those are human words, human ideas, human, human categories, human conceptions of family or kinship. God is not bound by or contained by our words and our categories. If he was, he wouldn't be or she wouldn't be God. Therefore, God is not good because what is good can always be better. Likewise, God is not a being because beinghood implies limited human understandings and definitions of what existence and beinghood is. 
So according to the apophatic tradition and the apophatic mysticism of pseudo-Dionysius, God is not a being. Now, if this sounds close to atheism, that's okay. Should sound a little close to atheism. However, the point with apophatic theology is not to deny God's existence. That's not the point. But to get closer to God through negating our various human understandings of God. And in the end, according to Pseudo-Dionysius, one is left with, as he puts it, divine silence, darkness, and unknowing. But that's okay. Because silence, darkness, and unknowing, according to the mystics like him, is the deepest truth of God. Silence is God's first language, some have said. Everything else is a mistranslation. Interesting, right? Here we see how, the apoph how apophatic mysticism is paradoxical. It's a way of saying the only way to know God is by knowing we know nothing of God. The only way to understand God is by understanding we cannot understand God. One must therefore embrace unknowing, humility, and God's otherness in order to actually embrace God. These ideas went on to influence countless philosophers and theologians and, of course, other mystics over the centuries. It influenced not just the mystics, but the, even the so-called mainstream church as well. In fact, there's good reason to think that Luther's critique of the church, which in large part inspired the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, there's good reason to think that Luther was deeply influenced by apophatic theology, which was reflected in his understanding of what he called the Deus Abscondidus. This is Latin for the hidden God. And Luther used this theory, this theology, this deus absconditus, um, to critique or challenge the church's authority, the church's so-called unquestionable theological authority. Luther contended that you cannot build an empire or a system of unquestionable theological authority like the church did. You cannot build such a system, an institution, on the back of the hidden God doesn't work. You cannot lay claim to ultimate spiritual authority the way the church did when God is utterly unknowable and incomprehensible. Thus, Luther used such ideas rooted in the mystical and apophatic tradition to undermine, to challenge the church's power and authority in the 16th century. And here we see the full scope of what the apophatic tradition was capable of. Now, to be clear, this does not mean that Luther or pseudo-Dionysius or the other proponents of apophatic theology believe that we couldn't know or say anything about God. There's, there's a paradox here. There's a way of living in the tension. They believe that certain aspects of God could still be known and experienced in things like love and justice in fellowship and kinship with others, in the scriptures, in the sacraments, and in personal mystical experiences. They still believe that certain aspects of God could be known or experienced, but, but only because the incomprehensible God has chosen to lower herself, himself, their self, in certain ways to make 
God's self known somewhat. And yet the ultimate truth of God always transcends these human experiences of the divine. Okay, that's a lot to take in on a Sunday morning, right? Uh, and the question you might be wondering is, okay, so what's the point of all this? Why should this matter? Are these just interesting factoids of church history and theory with no practical application? Obviously, I don't think that's true. One of the benefits of the apophatic approach is that it obliterates, which is a great word, or we might say it deconstructs our various forms of religious fundamentalism and religious tribalism. If God is fundamentally unknower, unknowable and bigger than we can possibly imagine, then no one religion, no one set of doctrines, dogmas, or creeds could possibly contain, define, or domesticate all that God is. In other words, apophaticism promotes universalism. This idea that everyone, regardless of culture or creed, is a child of God. As Paul says in, at the Areopagus, for we too are his offspring, which again is this Greek phrase, this, this Greek poetry, this Greek pantheism, we too are his offspring. This kind of mysticism not only deconstructs and liberates us from all kinds of religious fundamentalism and religious tribalism, but from other kinds of tribalism too, because if we really believe, if we really believe we are all one with God, regardless of our various social, sexual, racial, class identities, all these different identities we use to separate ourselves from each other, if we really believe we are all children of God, connected, then these hierarchies and oppressive social structures we create are transcended by our shared divine identity. To be clear, this does not mean, I believe, that we stop being black, white, gay, straight, male, female, rich, poor. These identities remain important parts of us and need to be talked about and taken seriously. But these identities are no longer the most important identity we have. Rather, our shared human identity is, our shared identity as beloved children of God, the source, the divine, the absolute, the one, whatever you want to call it. This is our greatest and highest identity. And by acknowledging that or believing in that and living into that, it, again, breaks down these, these tribalisms. And this becomes a uniting and liberating belief and something that promotes solidarity, peace, justice, and equity with the other. And this is how mysticism impacts the social sphere, in my opinion. I want to finish today by briefly talking about how apophatic mysticism can be understood as a mysticism of the cross. What do I mean by that? The cross was and is understood by many as completely antithetical to wisdom and reason. The cross is where both reason and revelation were crucified, according to John Caputo. 
And we are confronted at the cross with the utter incomprehensibility of God. The entire notion of a crucified God was completely nonsensical and unthinkable back then. And I dare say it still is. This is how many mystics, both past and present, understood the cross. And it's why the apophatic tradition is so appealing to such mystics, past and present. But this doesn't necessarily lead to atheism, but rather, we may say, an atheism of certain kind of God, the God of traditional religion or traditional theism. The God that dies on the cross for many in the apophatic tradition is the God of power and might, the interventionist supernatural God of beyond, the supreme being on high, the old man in the sky, as it were. This God dies, and the God that takes his place is a so-called weak and suffering God that isn't located in heaven on high, but right here and right now in the fabric of our lives and in our world. Such a God is not a being, but the being of beings. We might say an energy or a spirit that saturates our world or is indistinguishable from the world itself. This is a kind of pantheism or panentheism. God is all or all is inside of God. The main benefit, in my opinion, of this kind of mysticism isn't just that it opens us up to others and affirms other religions and walks of life and creates unity and sets us free from religious tribalism. But this kind of mysticism, I think, diffuses the problem of evil to a great degree, the problem of theodicy, which is the problem of having to explain how an all-powerful God, an all-powerful and loving God could allow gratuitous evil and suffering and death to exist. The answer from the apophatic tradition is simply, God is not all-powerful. God is not a being or a superman in the sky. And we need to get away from such obvious human projections of God and instead adopt a view of God more in line with the one revealed in the incarnation and the crucifixion. This God who suffers with us. This God who is present with us in the fabric, in the mortal fabric of our lives. This God who calls us to share in each other's sufferings as a kind of divine presence in the world. This God who calls us to embody to incarnate his spirit of unconditional love. This God who calls us to become his body in the world. This is where the apathetic tradition ultimately leads, in my opinion, to a kind of God consciousness in ourselves, in each other, and in the world. I'm reminded of the 14th century mystic Meister Eckhart, I know Steve spoke on a couple of weeks ago here. He was deeply influenced by the apophatic tradition, too. Meister Eckhart once said, I pray that God may rid you of God. I pray to God that you may be rid of God. And by that he meant, I pray that the one true God may rid you of all the idolatrous and false conceptions of God that keep you from seeing the divine all around you and in you and in everything and in everyone. And so that's my apophatic prayer for you this morning, my apophatic mystical prayer. I pray that God may rid you of God.
All right, we've got a few minutes. That's my talk for this morning. Um, questions, comments, complaints, anything goes, you guys know. Yeah, Marsha. Yeah, yeah, well, I'll just put it the way I think Meister Eckhart meant it, in the sense of getting rid of our false and idolatrous conceptions of God that are oppressive to us and others that keep us from really embracing this life and this world and each other and its depths uh, to get rid of this kind of escapist God that maybe allows us to shirk our responsibilities in the world and just, you know, turn to thoughts and prayers when it comes down to the world's problems. And instead of taking ownership, taking accountability, taking responsibility and being, and be, being God in the world, so to speak. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. Eichhardt wasn't uh, an atheist in that regard, but he was an atheist of a certain kind of God. In the same way, you know, hopefully we are too. We've let go of this kind of oppressive God of evangelicalism, right? That's what he was talking about. I pray to God that you may be rid of God. That's probably what he meant. Let go of your idolatrous and false conceptions of God that are oppressive to you and others. Yeah, sure. It's a good question. Other thoughts, questions, remarks? You don't. Cool. Well, silence, divine silence, darkness and unknowing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I like it. Well, let us conclude our formal service today uh, with our benediction, as we always do. We wanted to end a little bit early for the potluck, so this is good. Let's say this together now. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. All right, so thank you for being here, all of you joining us online, and all of you here as well. Let us, uh, we can go to the back now. Everything is set out. We can just dive right in. This is the Lord's Supper for us today, as Max was saying. Uh, the early church actually met around a meal, and so that's what we're doing this morning. Uh, so be blessed now in this. You gotta wanna break the heart of the spirit of the I don't wanna be the drummer in the band. You gotta wanna be a part of the man. You gotta see the artistry in tearing the place apart with me, baby. I am unruly in the stands. I am a rock on top of the sand. If it fits the midst of the hand, I'll take it just because I can. Thank you.